We're in the middle of a series on habits, and that video is trying to push again the habits that we do, these things that we are putting in our life, they matter. And they matter sometimes ways that we don't realize. Um, there's a tagline we've been using in this whole series, and we started the very first week, and it's this. This series is all about ways to connect with God and deepen our faith. If you take your basket of pens and you pass them down and you pull out your notes, those are the first two points in your notes. Connect with God and deepen our faith. These habits are tools, tools to help you connect with God and deepen our faith. Like a hammer, you don't usually go out and just hammer a nail just for fun. I just thought you're hammering nails. No, usually you hammer a nail in order to build something, build a building, build whatever. That's what these tools are. Um, we are building habits in our life that connect us to God and deepen our faith. I say that as an introduction because we are in this next habit of stewardship, and specifically stewardship with our money, the habit of giving. Now, being generous with our money for the sake of God and his kingdom, of our six habits that we're covering, this can be sometimes the most controversial. Whenever you talk about money, especially in church, people grow uncomfortable. So I'm really glad that I was the one chosen to speak this message to you guys today. It's, it's truly a blessing. But here's what I really believe. My goal today is to teach what the Bible says on this subject because I believe it connects us to God and deepens our faith. Of all the habits that we're going to study, this one has the potential to surprise us the most. If we put into practice what God says on this subject, it has the potential to do more with our faith, more with our relationship with God than any other practice you will do. There are 2,000 scriptures on this subject of giving, this, this money subject. Now put that in perspective, there's about 500 scriptures on prayer and faith. Let me say that again just so it resonates. We have about 500 verses on prayer and faith. We have four times the amount of scriptures about money. And when you do a deep dive on this particular subject, one of the things that will stand out is the fact from the perspective of scripture, everything that you and I own, everything that we possess, every dollar in our bank account, every toy in our kid's toy box, Everything belongs to God. If you study scripture, you will discover everything belongs to God. King David said it in Psalm 24, one like this. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. It's all the Lord's. Simple enough, right? God owns, God possesses, God has it all. Listen to this passage, Deuteronomy 8, 17. You may say to yourself, self, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember, the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. So not only does God own it all, but even our ability, even our ability to make money, he owns that too. Everything, it's all his and if we'll start from this, this, this perspective that he is creator and owner of all, it'll help us move forward. Because guess what? As we talked about last week, our God is a loving heavenly father who loves to give good gifts to his children. 
my kids, they, uh, they consume everything I bring into the house. So my wife and I, we make all the money and we do all the work. And then my kids come in and consume everything, having contributed nothing. Do you guys have any kids like that? Any, any kids that, okay. So even though they contribute nothing to our bottom line, we still give it to them. And we still love them. Why? Because they're our children. In this same way, God allows you and I to live in this world. And it's his. He created it. He created us, and he created our abilities to move forward. And yet, because he loves us, he allows us to use the resources that he created for his good and our good. He created it, and what does he ask us to do next? Well, there's several scriptures throughout the Bible that begin to show us what he wants us to do. I'm going to share one with you. This is in your Bible in John chapter 12, and we're going to spend most of the time here if you want to open there or open your, uh, your device of some kind. This is how it starts. It'll be on the screen. Jesus arrived at Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Okay? Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him, which would have been pretty interesting. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it out on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Now, there's three aspects of the story you really got to take in. First, Lazarus. How is Lazarus sitting there? I mean, he was just a couple months before Jesus raised him from the dead. Now, the sister, Mary, this is, this is obviously going to have a huge impact on her. Why? Because her brother was brought back to life. So why would she do an extravagant thing like this? Well, she saw Jesus do something amazing in her life and the life of her brother. So, of course, she's going to put this extravagant gift towards Jesus, which brings us to the second key point, the perfume. It's a year's wages. That's how much it would cost to do this. So in your mind, to make this relatable, take what you make in one year and just think about it. Okay, everyone has a different amount in your head, but it's still a year of your life of work. And then use all of that money to do an extravagant gift towards Jesus. Think about that. I mean, it would be so challenging, right? And that's what she does which, by the way, is not the only time in Scripture that we see this kind of outpouring towards Jesus, his disciples, or the ministry moving forward. Look at Luke 21.1. As he looked up, Jesus saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. I tell you the truth, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. So this wasn't a year's wages. She took everything she had left and gave it to the Lord. Now that's an extravagant gift. In fact, when you think about that gift, it shows several things, and these are in your notes. It shows proportional giving. It matters how much you give based on how much you have. Interesting, right? It shows sacrificial giving. We don't see Jesus run over there and try and stop her. 
by saying, they don't need your money. That temple is fine. They do not need your money. He doesn't stop her. He lets her, and then he glorifies the moment, saying, this is amazing. Look, you see that? You see what she just did? That's awesome. That's awesome. He doesn't want to stop her from receiving the reward for having that kind of faith in her God. It shows faith giving. She doesn't know where her next meal is going to come from. But she trusts that God is bigger. That God is bigger than her understanding. Which, by the way, isn't the only time we see that in the Bible. We can go on and on of accounts where people were bringing like the land they sold. People, there was like a line of people going towards the disciples with like pirate booty of treasure handing it over to the work of the Lord. There's these stories of these extravagant gifts over and over throughout the New Testament telling of the advancement of the kingdom of God. But before we get too far off the original text, let's go back to the third part of this story. Verse 4, But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't the perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. See, the third part of the story is this heart of Judas. Do you think he really cared about the poor? No, the scripture tells us that he doesn't. Judas, this story tells us exactly what he was actually thinking about it. In our world, we have this happen all the time. People yelling about someone else's gift. How could you give that? How could you give that amount to that place? You could have given that money to the poor. I hear that all the time. People say stuff like that. And do they care about the poor? No, they're just judging someone else's gift. And they have a different thought. They could be helping the poor, but that's not what they're thinking. And we have to be careful. We can go too far down this road and really just think Judas is this horrible person. But this story, that's not the real point. The point is a fight. And the fight is between two habits. The habit of generosity versus the habit of selfishness. Now, you have to learn generosity as opposed to being born selfish. My, what do our kids fight about? Well, basically everything, right? But it's usually something to do with mine. And I brought my favorite coffee cup, got it at Disneyland, pretty excited about it. And it's from Finding Nemo, and it's the seagulls that are always saying mine, 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 mine through that whole movie. And it just made me laugh so much because I'm like, oh, that's my house. That's literally my kids at my house all the time. And the seagulls remind me of my kids. See, my daughter has this ear-piercing voice. Not my oldest, can't even hear her. My third one down, she's so loud. And it's just, I hear her across the house yelling about some toy that she wants. And so then I yell across the house, give her the toy. I don't even care what it is. It could be a knife. Just give it to her. And then the other two kids will yell back saying, but it's actually mine. She's taking what is mine. And then I yell back, I don't care. I don't care what it is. This isn't about justice. This is about quietness. Right? Maybe you can relate. See, my kids, I didn't have to teach them to be selfish. They were born that way. I have to teach them generosity. 
And the truth is, most of us are very similar. And we had to learn generosity along the way. Or hopefully, at some point, we learn generosity along the way. But that selfishness habit, it creeps in. And it keeps creeping in. And we have to constantly remind ourselves to be generous. You ever ask yourself as you're reading this story in John, why would God let Judas handle the money? At one point, God calls Judas the devil. At another point, as he's handing him something, he says, you're going to betray me. Like he, he knows who Judas is. This is not like a surprise to him. And yet I read the story and I think that's because we know the ending. We know that Judas betrays him, but it hasn't happened yet. In fact, Jesus brings Judas along in every story and every miracle and every teaching so that Judas has every possible chance to say no to this temptation. God doesn't bring the temptation. God brings Judas along to say no to the temptation and gives him the opportunity by handling the money to say no to that temptation. And over and over and over again, Judas fails. So how are we doing? Because we have the same temptation. We are given the gifts of God, the blessings of God. God puts us in charge of our money. How do we do with God's blessings? In 2 Corinthians 8, it says this, out of the most severe trial, catch that because we're not in like happy times here, out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege, the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And they didn't do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. Which brings us to the other habit in that story, this habit of generosity, the habit of giving. Do you know the Bible speaks of three levels of giving? So the first level, most people know it, it's this tithe. What is the tithe? Well, it literally means a tenth. If you look it up in the dictionary, what tithe means, it would mean a tenth, one-tenth. And in the Israelite constitution, if you will, their law, they had this law that everything that they brought in, they had to give a tenth of their income to two things that God really cared about. The first one was to pay the salary of the priests of that day. So there's this group of people in the Israelite faith who dedicated themselves to the service of God, sort of like pastors today, if you will. And some of the money was set aside to, given, to be given to pay the salary of those priests. The second thing was to supply food and necessities to the poor. In fact, Israel built these large buildings, these, these barns, if you will, in the capital city to store all the excess food and the, all the things they would need for these times in which uh, they, didn't, they had less. So they gave money to these buildings to pay these salaries for these times in which they would be in need. In other words, let me do a very simple illustration. Sorry for the simplicity. But if God gives me this $10, okay, and it's, it's his, right? If we really believe everything is his, then this $10 is his. And he says, all right, I want you to do whatever you want with this. But a tenth of it, I want it to go towards a couple things that really matter to me. So I have to give a dollar to those things. That would be a tenth. 
I mean, the government takes a little bit more than that, right? Let's not talk about that. But God just gives it to me and then says, I want you to do a couple of things with it on my behalf. Now, I would take that and go, that's a pretty good deal because it wasn't mine. It was given to me by him. If we believe that everything is God's, then that's the way we should be looking at it. Now, sometimes people say, when we talk about the tithe, that that ended in the New Testament. And I actually can get behind it because what they're saying is when the law came, or I'm mean, sorry, when, the, when Jesus came, he put an end to the law and gave us this freedom in him. And I love it. I'm like, yes, you're absolutely correct. We were freed from the law. And in the nature of the Jewish people, they had made this tithe such a regular part of them, and they still did after that point, that it became a ritual for them. And so every story we see after this is Jesus showing extravagant giving. And this is where people don't, do not like to go with this conversation. You're right, the tithe ended there, and then the stories after that are of people giving a year's wages, of people giving everything that they owned, of people lining up to hand the disciples half of their land, and some getting in trouble because they only gave half. So if you'd like to continue that train of thought, then yes, your freedom should cause extravagant generosity because you know the truth. That is where it goes. So that second area that the Bible talks about is the offering. The offering is when you go above and beyond the tithe in a gift of some kind. These are those big project things that you get behind. The missions that are outside of the church, the help to make something really special to happen here or in the community, the giving to nonprofits to do something that you love and adore and want to be behind. We should always be finding ways to give that offering. And then there's those extravagant gifts. These are the stories that blow our mind. How do you give a year's wages? How do you do that? The unfortunate truth is that most people do not get to the first level, the tenth the average American Christian family gives less than 3% of their income. 3% of their income every year. The American who professes Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of their life. In addition, the more someone makes, the less percentage of their income that they give away. The study that was done in 2006 said this, between five and 10,000 a year, if you make that on average, you're giving 3%. But when you go over 100,000 in the income that you make, you're giving less than 1.5% of your income. So we ran the numbers for our church, which is always fun. Our church, with the average of the income in this area, we give 2.2% of our income. So we are below the national average. And then we took out a couple givers who kind of give a lot around here, and uh, we dropped to 1%. So our church is giving 1% of their income. Now, we've done a lot with that. It's actually kind of amazing when you think about the churches we've planted, the missions that we've done, uh, this building, and all the pastors. We have an extraordinary staff, and we've done it on 1%. I mean, imagine what we could do if we actually gave the tithe. Imagine what this church would accomplish. They've been a pretty good steward with one, but imagine what we could do with 10. One of the favorite moments of my life, because here's the good news. 
when you pass level one, when you start a tithe, almost everyone also goes into offering an extravagant giving. Why? Something clicks. There's this click in the brain that says, oh, it's better with God. The blessings of God, that's real. And there's this click where you begin to push yourself and start doing things that are far and beyond because you realize God wants the best for you and for his church. And so when we were launching a a church in Clovis, I had to sell my house in Corona. And it was one of my favorite moments of my life. Not because I was selling a house and planting a church. I was really scared about that. Pretty sure I was making a horrible decision. But, I mean, it all worked out and really good things happened. But I was very scared because we had zero people and we were leaving a good job. And anyway, when we sold this house for the first time, it sold for more than we expected. So we were able to do this extravagant gift through the church. It was more money for us than the first four years of my paid ministry, which may not be saying a whole lot, but still, for us, it was a really big deal. And we were so excited to do it. We were like, my wife and I actually looked at each other and said, this is our first chance to do an extravagant gift. And here's what happened. That first year when we landed in Fresno, my wife's business took off, this jewelry-making business. And I, we, it was the weirdest thing. It was more money than she's ever made in that business before. And not only that, for the first time in our entire lives, lives of being pastors, we were actually able to put money into savings. Can you imagine that? Having a savings account? Like, we couldn't. I honestly, it was like, wow, we actually have a little bit of money in case of a rainy day. It was so exciting for us. And I really have to put the caveat on and say this doesn't, like I'm saying this is going to happen. This is what happens when you give. But it ironically is the one habit where God says, test me. He literally tells you, test me in this. I want you to. I want you to see what I can do when you actually trust and believe me with this habit. Mark 14 tells the same story of John. And it says this. It adds something. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Now listen to Jesus. Leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you. And you can help them anytime you want. But you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. I tell you the truth. Wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. That jumped out at me because that's her reward. It's a reward you you cannot buy. We're talking about Mary. We're talking about her today, thousands of years later. I couldn't tell you most of the U.S. presidents. I don't know who they are. I mean, we've had many years of United States presidents, like the most powerful person, whatever, or kings. Go back to kings. They, a, a king, like, controlled the world. I couldn't name one, but I know this lady. And that is so interesting. And many people know this lady, whether Christian or not, because the reward was Her story is going to be told forever. 
I mean, we're going to meet this person and be able to talk to her about this particular story. Now, Judas hears it. Judas is in this moment. Judas hears the teaching of Jesus, and it just makes him get more selfish. He goes from this point to betray Jesus. So you can hear this story and do two things. It's the habit of selfishness, or like Mary, have this habit of generosity. Your response is what matters to this story. Some people hear the story of Mary, and they say, well, if I had seen my brother raised from the dead two months before, I would also probably give a year's wages. I've heard that before, and I like the argument. But here's what's so true about that. Listen to John eleven twenty five. 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? I love how the verse ends. Do you believe this? Because you have to kind of go, wait, if I really believe this, then I do know someone who was raised from the dead. It was me. If I really believe this, then we all know someone raised from the dead. If you believe that Jesus Christ saved you, saved you from death, and raised you up as a new Christian, a new believer. Romans 8.11 says, And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. He raised us from the dead. So will we also show it in the way that we live? Will we show it in our habit of giving to a level that believes it to be true in our life? Not so the church can survive. It will survive without you. And it's not for your pastors to survive. We'll be fine. This is about you to connect with God and deepen your faith. Do we really think God needs the money? Of course not. Of course not. It's not about that. He made the money. He made everything. So what is all of this about? It's about you. It's always been about you, to connect you with God and deepen your faith. The rewards that God brings are far, far different than what we would expect, and they're greater than what we would expect. I heard a preacher just a couple months ago, and I'm, this is a true story. I'm there with him, and he's telling me this story of how he would walk around, and he'd have a couple hundred dollar bills in his pocket everywhere he went, which I thought was amazing. But then he would walk up to someone who he saw that was kind of in need. He'd pray over them, and then he'd slip the hundred dollar bill <laughs> into their pocket or their hand. I'm like, dude, that's amazing. That's an, I don't know why you would do that. So he continued on. He said, I have this daughter, and she fell away from the Lord. She did a, a whole different path. And then something switched in her mind, and she came back home, and she rediscovered who Jesus Christ was in her life, and she began following him again. And she said this to, to the pastor, her dad. She said, when I was away, I just could not get the image of you walking up to someone and praying over them and slipping this $100 bill into their pocket. And I just kept seeing that over and over and over again. And I kept saying, I want to be like my dad. So she came back because of that and rediscovered Jesus Christ. 
And that pastor in tears said, do you know how much I would have paid for that moment with my daughter? Far more than all the $100 bills I've ever given away. And it touched me. It touches me right now. Because God's rewards, they're far greater than what we can imagine. We don't know what those kind of moments are going to do, but sometimes they do things like that. I want to challenge you this morning. On your way in, inside your bulletin uh, is this envelope. Go ahead and pull it out. And inside the envelope is this card. Pull the card out and look at it. Um, this is a challenge for you. This is between you and God. Here's what I want you to do. There's some questions on the front for you to fill out, some, some pushing moments. And it's a 90-day challenge. You're going to fill it out, put it back in the envelope, and then seal it. Then I need you to write your address on the front. We're never going to look inside. This is between you and God. If you want to leave it blank and then we send it back to you in 90 days, on August 19th, you'll open it up and go, yeah, I did nothing. How's that working out for me? That's what you can do. But I would encourage you to push yourself. You're the only one that's ever going to see it. So August 19th, when you look at this, 90 days from now, you can say what God did or didn't do in your life as a challenge. So look at it right now. I will give 10% of my income for the next 90 days. For some of you, you're going, I don't think so. Okay, all right, but do something. What is that number? If it's zero right now, then maybe it's one, 2%, but you need to push yourself and say, God, if you really, really do say test you, I will, and then commit to it. That second line, I will give this much as an offering in the next 90 days. What does that look like for you? What's that outside the box thing that you can bless? And then that third one on there, I will give blank as an extravagant gift. It doesn't have to be money. Maybe you have something else in mind. Write it down and then sign it. And then put this in the envelope and seal it. Put your address on the front. And in a moment, we're going to collect those. Remember, all these habits are to connect with God and deepen your faith. This is one of those habits that can be a bit challenging, and I can't wait to talk about prayer again. Can't wait to go back to those subjects. But these are the types of things that connect you with God and deepen your faith. On the very first week, I used the scripture. It said this, to discipline ourselves for the sake of godliness. God wants us to be godly. That meant God-likeness. God wants his character to be formed in us. And our God, by nature, is a giver. He gave first his son. He gave us life. He gave us the abundant life here on earth. We are probably, probably most like Jesus when we're generous. Let's be God-like. God, we come before you and we give you this time of commitment, this time of challenge. Uh, it's not easy, Lord, so I pray a blessing on each person in this room as they do it. I pray, God, that you show up in a way they could never have bought and that you make it so clear that you did something far beyond what they would have asked or imagined. God, I pray for those blessings. 
And I pray that they happen in a way that they know it's you. When they get to say, I saw God work. I can't wait, Lord, for those God stories to be told in August. So God, we give you this time. We give you this habit. In Jesus' name, amen.